more than anything else, what the uh, the sounds of Herb Alpert and the two one brass signify uh, is happiness, human happiness, and also that what you're listening to is a new edition of Fangraphs Audio. Uh, this particular edition, the, the guest is uh, Fangraphs managing editor Dave Cameron, and as he does most weeks, uh, what follows in this week's edition, this Monday Monday edition of Fangraphs Audio, is Dave Cameron analyzing all baseball. Specifically, Dave Cameron looks at the discusses the standings tool that is now available at the site that became available last week and which uh, has announced to the world that the Tigers are a great baseball team, has made that fact clear. He discusses uh, Anthony Rizzo's new extension with the Chicago Cubs. And I ask I ask him uh, why if uh, why and how has Anthony Rizzo been traded so many times and is he still very good? Uh, Dave Cameron answers that question knowledgeably. Uh, with great knowledge. We also talk about Bryce Harper because um, Dave Cameron likes to discuss him. Uh, I will add this. I will add this, that uh, at maybe two or three occasions, uh, Dave Cameron's voice becomes uh, slightly sort of um, machine-like or computer-like. Um, you can, uh, w- while it might be annoying, uh, allow me to give you two amusing thoughts uh, that you might have <clears throat> while that's occurring. One, uh, one we've gone to this before. His, his voice breaks up a little bit to imagine Dave Cameron as a computer, right? A computer whose processor is overloaded. Briefly, uh, that's an, that's an amusing thought. Um, furthermore, you can uh, take think uh, this is that B, uh, or if I said A, it, that B, uh, the author, uh, me, the hosts, that's me. Uh, his modem has been working poorly of late, uh, and despite the fact that his wife has asked him several times uh, to seek repair, uh, he has ignored her. Uh, he has ignored her and hoped for the problem to resolve itself, uh, because that is how you solve problems: is by is by ignoring them and hoping that they go away. And uh, with that, let us get to this episode of Fangraphs Audio. It features Dave Cameron, Fangraphs uh, managing editor Dave Cameron, and it begins right now. <laughs> yeah, go for it. You're adjusting the levels. Yeah, that's what happens when we start. Yes. Uh, Got to get the levels correct. Yeah, they um, yeah they actually look they look pretty decent to start things off. If uh, if I've if I've included this portion of our conversation in the podcast, I'll let it be known to the listener that I am uh, I'm currently adjusting the levels. The levels appear right. to be uh, they appear to be good, but um, I reserve the right to adjust them further. <laughs> Can I mention that I saw my favorite Fangraphs audio-related tweet of all time last night on Twitter? Uh, yeah, you can. Yeah, do that. Okay, so it was a know, like 1 a.m. or something. A guy tweets out, "I don't know why I'm still listening to Fangraphs audio. It's so unentertaining." Uh, un- so not only are we not entertaining him, we have trapped him into continuing to listen and suffer at the same time. Wow. Yeah. Job well done. Coach. Yeah, there you go. We really nailed it. Now I wonder, because yeah. uh, he just says Fangraph Studio generally. Of course, it is a it's a pretty different beast depending on right. on the guest. Uh, as I note frequently, the Dave Cameron episodes uh, uh, frequently on Mondays, Dave Cameron will analyze all baseball. 
Um, right. And then on Thursdays, Dane Perry will insult all world. Yeah, he does. Uh, he does yeah. it, it, mostly himself. He's, if he's doing right. anyone a disservice, it's it's himself. <laughs> yeah. But uh, well, uh, very good. Uh, yeah. I guess we've somehow trapped him, as you mentioned. Right. Yeah. Uh, I think as long as we have listeners, we don't care whether they're yeah, uh, that's true. entertained or not. No. As long as they're clicking the the iTunes link or or listening on the site, we're good. Yeah, we've got good. your money now. Yeah, we've got. Well, we don't really, but it's fine. <laughs> it's, it's fine. Uh, yeah. Dave Appleman said that at some point we might uh, append some advertising to this, but um, he's moving at a at an Applemanian pace. Uh, I think in terms of integrating that. Right. Well, you know, I think we do have to give Appleman credit for the new standing step charts that we rolled out last week. I would rather he be working on things like that than adding ads to well, the podcast. Yeah, well, let's do that. Let's actually uh, – for um, we had a number of things to talk about here. You wrote about Rizzo today. Anthony Rizzo, I want to get to that. Uh, you were uh, singing the praises of uh, Adam Kilgore's uh, – um, well, I guess it's not just him. It's sort of a, a group of people, but his piece on Bryce Harper's swing. Uh, I want to nail those things down. But you mentioned the projected standings, and I sort of want to uh, – I, I was interested in these. I guess the ancillary benefit here is that it's um, sort of advertising for the site. But that's – I guess my main interest is in um, talking with you, asking you about kind of what this uh, – the tool seems significant because I look at it now, and we've had standings – We've had a sort of limited standings uh, tool or function on the site before. But now when I'm looking at it, I see year-to-date, and then I see projected rest of the season, and now I can see projected full-season uh, full standings and wonder why they even bother why they even bother to play the games. Right. I mean, that's really what we're – our goal is to get to the point where uh, after about the first, you know, three weeks of the season or so, mm-hmm. and we say, okay, things have stabilized, at least O-swing rate and, you know, uh, contact rate. These stats are stabilized. We have your projections. You can all go home now. Right. Well, we're not doing that. But uh, let me see if I get I'll, – I'll describe the basic uh, – the sort of bare bones uh, qualities of the uh, the, the standings and, and um, depth charts functions or tools, and then you elaborate on it. But the idea is that, well, we know what the standings are to date. Uh, using a combination of Zips and Seamer, uh, we have a sense of uh, – we have a sense of what each player will do for the remainder of the season. Uh, using human input, I think from our writers, a number of our writers, we have a sense of what uh, – we have a sense. We don't know, but we have a sense of what playing time might look like for the rest of the season. Putting all that together, uh, we can come up with something like a projected uh, full season win and loss total. Yeah, I mean, that's basically the gist of it. We, we, you know, I think there's a lot of sites on the, on the Internet that have depth charts and where you can go and say, you know, who's this team starting second base on. But generally they're – uh, the most common kind of graphical interface is a baseball field with names kind of overlaid the top in the position where, you know, like the second baseman is, uh, his name is listed a little bit to the right of the second base bag on the diamond. And, uh, so it kind of gives you an idea of where the players would stand on the field and kind of where their depth chart is. But there's no real uh, analysis numbers uh, attached to it. It's just names. And so I think what we like about our depth chart is that you can look at it and kind of say, okay, uh, you know, the Cubs starting shortstop is Starlin Castro, and he's a three-win player going forward, and their backup is terrible. If he gets hurt, this is the uh, drop-off between Castro and the next best guy. Or you can look at, you know, maybe the starting rotations are the most interesting, where you look at it and say, you know, for the Mariners, Felix Fernandez, Ashi Yukuma are awesome. And then dramatically tails after that, the back three starters are terrible, and they have no pitching depth down in the minors that would be able to come up and kind of offer any help 
uh, for the second half to replace any of these guys, or in the Rangers' case, you'll get like Justin Grimm and Nick Tepish, who are like probably the eighth and ninth best starters uh, on that team, at least in terms of <laughs> when everyone's healthy. And these guys are like quality, decent major league starters. And so I think uh, having a depth chart that kind of gives you more information than just a list of names is uh, really quite useful. Yeah, and it's also helpful. And I know that this is this is available still on the leaderboards, but like right now. Just looking at like a summary of the depth charts, and you can see on the right there just um, how much each team is getting from batting and pitching, and yeah. I think it just gives you an idea of like uh, first of all where wins come from, uh, and, and you know, in, in, I mean, you know, there's obviously further analysis to do about this, but it's uh, it, it is a popular refrain, in particular, uh, probably on a radio or television broadcast, uh, to hear that baseball is all about pitching and defense. Um, it. Um, those are important things, I think we can say. Uh, it's also about hitting, um, so that's another part, and maybe uh, base running. There's a lot of things, and, you know, you can see them broken out. But, like, I could see right here that uh, the Tigers are projected to, uh, to finish the season with the most wins at this point. Yep. They're projected to win the most games uh, from now till the end of the season. And you see, uh, for example, that uh, their team is very good. They, they actually are um, the best at hitting and – well, maybe second best at hitting in terms of projected amounts. And they also have the best pitching staff. Uh, yeah. So you can say, well, that's a good team. They really do have a good pitching staff, it turns out. Their, their pitching staff is amazing. Their starting rotation is almost – it's in the conversation to be as good as that Philly staff of a couple of years ago in the mid-'90s Braves. It's one of the best staffs we've ever seen. And, but those, So a strange thing. So let's make this about, about the Tigers for a second because it, it, I know that when you uh, – when we first – uh, when we first released the standings tool, that was uh, certainly one of the things that you uh, focused on was the the Tigers' success or the quality of that team. Um, you mentioned that it's it, it it is as good as or maybe nearly as good as that Phillies starting rotation from a couple years ago. Uh, that's broken up a little bit because uh, I mean Hamels and Lee are still there, uh, but Halliday is kind of a shell of him of his former self. And you know Royals, what's gone. Uh, Joe Blanton's somewhere else. He wasn't really part of the conversation. Th- this seems to have, not that it should have, but it seems to have snuck up on us. It certainly didn't have the, the um, I guess the, the narrative was not as well developed before the season began. Right. I mean, I think, like, uh, Audible Sanchez has always kind of been a little bit under the radar, probably part of that pitching in Miami. But, you know, I mean, he's a guy who had, you know, some arm surgery. He's not necessarily a 220, 230-inning guy who, you know, gets the highlights in terms of, oh, this guy's an ace and, uh, but Sanchez is a really good pitcher. I think the Tigers did really all the tag him in the, in the uh, mid-season trade last year, and then resign him uh, to a you know pretty decent contract. Doug Fister has been getting better ever since the Tigers got him from Seattle, uh, and Max Scherzer I think is a little under the radar for what he is. So Justin Verlander certainly got his share of hype, but the three guys behind him are all excellent. I mean, really the Tigers probably have three uh, All-Star starters. You can maybe make an argument for Fister depending on how he pitches over the next little month. You know, maybe not the best fifth starter in baseball, but certainly better than the RA we would suggest. Certainly now in the bullpen capable of replacing him uh, if Purcello doesn't take a you know step forward at some point, uh, or if they trade him to a team that has good infield defense to help him succeed. Um, I think, you know, one through five, well, really one through six, the Tigers are unmatched because of how good their back end is. Like, Merlander's awesome, but there are teams that have pitchers very close to just Merlander. There's nobody who has a team, and no one has a rotation as good two through six as the Tigers do. Now, and it's interesting because now even Rick Porcello has made it uh, – of late, he's been making it more interesting. Uh, I know that I mean, he was – Porcello was 
was probably one of the best pitchers in spring training. Uh, say what you will about spring training. He struck out – I think he, had, he walked zero people, and he had, you know, yeah. 24, 25 – I think it was 18, I think it was 19, Right, yeah, and zero, against zero walks. And yeah. he's someone whose stuff has always suggested that um, – you know, if he could get a, if he could develop a breaking ball for real, that he could maybe start striking people out. In the meantime, though, he still posted ground ball rates of like fifty five percent or something like that. Right. Um, when the season began, he w- did not do that. He did not do that at all. <laughs> um, he started off very poorly. His last three starts, though, uh, I think he's got like eighteen strikeouts against just four walks. Um, well, with, with regard to P- Porcello specifically. Do, do you see that the real Porcello is the one from the first four starts where he had three total strikeouts? Uh, do you see it's more like it, – is, is Porcello's upside the Porcello we've seen from the last three starts where he's actually uh, gotten some swings and misses? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's – I mean, Porcello's, what, 23? I mean, he's still pretty young. I mean, you know, there are a lot of pitchers his age and minors who are still working on breaking balls. And uh, I think overall Porcello's probably, you know, uh, a little better than – um, he's giving credit for. I mean, his ERA is uh, inflated because of the fact that he is a ground ball machine on the team with a terrible infield defense. Uh, and he doesn't, you know, the fact that he doesn't get strikeouts makes him kind of a bad fit for a team with a terrible infield defense and the rest of the rotation just strikes out without foot doesn't matter. Uh, I think Porcello, if you moved him to a team where he could, you know, uh, have a little better support, didn't have to pitch with men on base so often because of all the hits he was giving out. Uh, I think you'd see Porcello's strikeout rate go up. I think he's a, probably a league average pitcher, maybe a little bit better than that, with some upside to maybe turn into a, an even better pitcher. Right now, I would say he's kind of like the American League version of Jake Westbrook uh, with a chance to turn into you know something better than Jake Westbrook. Okay, we focused on the Tigers a little bit. I'm curious, uh, w- with the release of the, um, the standings tool, if there is anything that uh, surprised you or if it's uh, – if it maybe solidified anything for you, but just seeing in this format that maybe you'd only suspected before. Uh, I think maybe I mean, this is something that I, I think we kind of hinted at or, or noticed a little bit, but the Marlins are uh, dreadful. I mean, everyone was talking about the Astros potentially being, you know, one of the worst teams of all time. They're on pace to win like 40 games and get outscored by 400 runs. Uh, I think everyone knew going into the season that the Astros were an awful baseball team, one of the worst we've ever seen. The Marlins are just as bad, especially with John Carlos Stanton on the table list. Uh, you know, I know they've made noises about how, you know, they got all these young players back in these trades they've made the last few years, and they're building back towards being a good team, but they are so far away, uh, especially if you assume that they're going to trade Stanton probably this winter. Um, they're so far away from being competitive in that division. And you look at the Nationals and the Braves and what the Marlins would have to do to get back to that level. Uh, you know, as much as the Astros get crapped on for – for really putting a terrible baseball team on the field this year. Uh, they're really, you know, I think you look at the standing page, the Marlins are, are going to give them a race. I mean, that's going to be a chase for the number one pick in the draft. I guess uh, Carlos Rodone from uh, North Carolina State is the uh, uh, kind of the prize of next summer's draft. Both the Marlins and the and Astros are going to make a good run with that pick. What uh, is, Do you sort of see a difference between the, the fertility the being demonstrated by the Marlins versus the Astros? I mean, the Astros comes with some optimism, at least, right? Yeah, I think it, when you look at Houston's roster, they're bad because they're playing guys who probably shouldn't be in the major leagues yet or shouldn't be thrust into roles uh, that they're not ready for. They have Robbie Grossman as their starting center fielder. They've just had to push kids too early. Their starting rotation is awful in part because they just don't have uh, the ability to let guys 
season themselves in the minor leagues and, and get ready for major league pitching. The Marlins are bad with uh, guys who have no future. I mean, Juan Pierre, they're starting left fielder. Um, you know, they signed Casey Kochman. <laughs> like, you know, the Marlins have a whole bunch of nobodies who are never going to be anything. They're just bad for the sake of being bad. Like, they have some talent on the farm, certainly, and there's, you know, Jose Fernandez here and a Marcelo Luna there. Uh, it's not like there's no talent on the roster, but by and large, the guys the Astros spent the, uh, the Marlins spent the offseason acquiring have no future in the franchise. And at least the Astros are taking some shots on some kids and giving chances to guys who, uh, you know, might turn into something with an everyday job. The Marlins are just, you know, filling out a lineup card. We saw a situation recently where um, Mike Redmond uh, was put into a, a very awkward position. Um, uh, he he had uh, – it was a doubleheader. Yeah, and uh, I, I'm thinking of Mike Redmond, right? He's the coach of the Marlins. Yeah, yeah. Okay, he's the coach. He's sort of the coach. Uh, he was put in an awkward position because he had uh, um, scheduled uh, Ricky Nolasco to start the first game of a doubleheader and Jose Fernandez to start the latter one. Um, and then a command came down from on high. Uh, Jeffrey Loria said he wanted to see them switched, I guess, uh, so that Fernandez was pitching in warmer weather. Um, uh, this also it happens simultaneously that generally veterans are allowed to choose which of the two games uh, they'd want to pick, uh, want to start when there's a doubleheader. And uh, so Redmond made the switch, but at the same time uh, he angered his players in so doing. I mean, Alaska specifically, but then probably the rest of the veterans because it was seen as a, a, a weak maneuver or, you know, against sort of uh, unwritten policy. Uh it's sort of an interesting situation, though, right? Because while Redmond perhaps gets fined or fired in the mean, t- you know, in the short term, if he doesn't abide by Loria's, di- you know, dictum or uh, dictation, then he. Uh, but in in the long run, does he lose the trust of his players and maybe makes it more difficult for himself to have a job? Yeah, but I think it's tough to know exactly what went on there because I think uh, most parties involved, or maybe even all parties involved, have denied that that story is actually true. So, like when that came out, it was kind of, hey, this happened, and then you know, more is like, no, I didn't do that, Redmond, but he didn't do that. So, uh, you know, if it's true, uh, and if that actually happened, and that's why the switch was made, then I think you know, uh, there's an argument to be made that maybe you don't want to be the manager of the Marlins if you if you don't even have the ability to decide who's going to start what game, and the owner's just going to tell you. Uh, what you have to do. I mean, at that point, you're kind of a puppet. Um, I, I'm not 100% sure that's what happened. We, were, you know, I, I think the reports are a little bit contradictory. Uh, and it, you know, this is a, a thing of some inconsequence, right? Like, it doesn't really matter who starts which game of a doubleheader. It'd be one thing if, uh, you know, Jeffrey Moria was telling Mike Redman that he had to hit Jose Fernandez cleanup. Uh, you know, at that point, maybe you just resign in protest. Um, you know, why that switch was made, I'm not 100% sure. Uh, but from what I can tell, Redmond seems to be a uh, decent major league manager with some potential, and seems like the guys like working, like like playing for him. So my um, guess is that this one incident uh, probably isn't going to sabotage his chances at uh, keeping the team playing hard for him, or at least as hard as this group of players can play. All right, all right. So we're done with that. We're done. With, let's move on from standings. Uh, let's look at a piece that you wrote for today uh, with regard to uh, Cubs first baseman. Um, and previously Padres first baseman, and previously to that uh, Red Sox uh, prospect um, uh, Anthony Rizzo. Uh, of course, well, while he's changed teams, he has uh, he has not changed at least one executive, and that is Jed Hoyer, uh, who keeps acquiring yeah. him. Um, yeah. 
today, uh, today, yesterday, the uh, um, the Cubs agreed uh, to an extension with Rizzo. Uh, you looked at that extension. You looked at it, um, you know, both I guess in and of itself, but also. Uh, relative to some other extensions that have been given to youngish first baseman, I say youngish because Alan Craig is one of them. Uh, uh, youngish first baseman Paul Goldschmidt and Alan Craig, and you you very much like this deal. Well, I guess all parties win, but you very much like it for the Cubs. Yeah, I think when we look back at the you know the kind of three first baseman deals, you know, all these deals signed in the last couple months: Goldschmidt and Craig signed, uh, Rick Foyle started the season, and now Rizzo signed a month and a half into the season. Uh, they all basically happened at the same time. Uh, they're all kind of four players with similar career arcs. I mean, Craig's, you know, got more service time, a little bit longer of a track record, but he's also the older of the two, or older of the three. Um, and, they, you know, they all signed for kind of around the same amount of money. You know, Goldsmith and, and Craig got $31 million, Rizzo got $41 million. Um, there's team options that are basically the same. I think it's $13.5 million for Craig, $14.5 million for Rizzo and Goldsmith. Uh, so it's all kind of the same amount of money. Um, but when you're looking at these three players, Rizzo shouldn't be getting the same amount of money as Goldsmith and Craig. Nothing against Goldsmith and Craig, but Goldsmith's two years older, Craig's five years older, uh, Craig is one year closer to free agency, and uh, the three, Rizzo's only one who's going to get a super two arbitration guy, meaning he gets good arbitration four times. So Rizzo is in, I think, significantly better position to go year to year and, and land a huge contract. Because I think, you know, Craig had gone year to year, um, you know, in a couple of years, he would have been a free agent. He would have been a free agent at 32. He's had some durability. Uh, I wasn't considered necessarily a top prospect. He's probably a guy who's maxing out his set right now. He's uh, an above average player, but not a lot of star potential. I mean, uh, he's certainly at the next peak, but you know, Alan Craig, probably a franchise player, probably at the peak of what he's going to be. Uh, you know, Goldson has a little bit more upside, but again, he's a little more physically developed. He's a little bit more, uh, of what he's going to be. Um, and Rizzo's already at that level, and two years younger, with some more development to go. Um, you know, it's too aggressive right now, but he can become a little more patient, add some walks to the skill set. Rizzo's a good defender at first base. Uh, I mean, the chance that is there for Anthony Rizzo to become basically Prince Fielder. I mean, probably a few more walks, or a few less walks, and a little better defense. But that kind of four- to five-win player, we saw what Prince Fielder is a free agent at 27, uh, you know, was able to command. Rizzo was on pace to become a free agent at 28, 29, I think. Uh, somewhere in that range. If Rizzo would have gone year to year, he would have gotten super two arbitration, so he would have gone through arbitration four times, uh, collected nice paychecks along the way, wouldn't have had to wait uh, a really long time before his salary started escalating, and then signed a $250, $300 million deal to free agent in a few years. Instead, he, he took the guaranteed money now, uh, and it's going to end up probably making somewhere in the range of $13 million for each of his first three free agent years. But he's still set up to maybe get a, a nice contract when he gets to free agency at 32, uh, but it won't be what he would have gotten if he had gotten there at 29. Uh, and I think from the Cubs' perspective, they have to love the fact that they got three free agent years uh, at a, you know, a significant discount and didn't have to pay too much more than what they would have had to pay if he had gone year to year anyway. Have you seen, we, I sort of mentioned Jed Hoyer briefly, you mentioned in your piece too that wherever he's been, Jed Hoyer has acquired Anthony Rizzo. It's, yeah. Have you ever seen sort of uh, this kind of connection between an executive and a player? I mean, especially a player who, you know, has that much uh, upside, I guess? Yeah, I think like, it's a little unusual because players moved around so much. I mean, you know, he was only in San Diego for a short period of time. Uh, he acquired Rizzo in that short period of time, and now he's only been in Chicago for a short period of time, and he's acquired and extended Rizzo uh, during that period of time, too. But I think, you know, there's no question that, Rizzo is the Theo Epstein, Jed Hoyer, Jason McLeod kind of player 
uh, and that's kind of the triumvirate of power in Chicago right now. This is their guy. I mean, this is the kind of player they like, and, you know, understandably so. He's a 23-year-old first baseman who can hit. Uh, so um, I think it's hard to find comparisons to other uh, executives who keep acquiring the same player early in his career because guys don't get moved who are any good this, this early in their career that often. Um, but I do think, you know, I mean, Billy Dean always had a Rubio Dorazo with his white whale. He spent years trying to get a Rubio Dorazo. I think there are executives who latch on to a certain type of player or franchises who really like a player. And Raul Lamontes is on his third tour of duty with the Mariners right now. I mean, there are, I think there are franchise uh, player connections that seem to keep recurring. Um, in this case, I think it's just uh, Rizzo keeps recurring with play, with executives who value you know uh, power. Yeah, but so the interesting thing with regard to Rizzo too, right, is that it's not a situation where. Uh, where Hoyer and company have coveted have coveted him so much that they're that they've overpaid for him really. Uh, right. Um, you you mentioned in your piece, and this was a, a sort of a surprising a brief aside, is that uh, Rizzo is probably already as good as Adrian Gonzalez. Um, he's been more productive so far this year. Would not be shocking. I, I think you would agree. It would not be shocking to see him post uh, similar or better end of season numbers. Um, that was one of the trades, and then the trade for Andrew Kashner. I mean, Andrew Kashner could still very much work out. You know, he's a he throw he sits at 95 with his fastball. Uh, you know, if he's healthy, uh, he could he could be a nice piece. But the point is that that uh, Hoyer et cetera had never really overpaid for Rizzo. Yeah, right. They originally drafted him as a sixth round pick. So I mean, you look at the all the acquisitions that they've been involved with. You'd have to say that they've done pretty well. I mean, you know, certainly. Uh, trading Adrian Gonzalez away, you need to get something back in return. So it wasn't the, you know, they acquired Rizzo for nothing and they didn't pluck him out of Boston's farm system and steal him away because the, the Red Sox didn't understand what they had. I and mean, then they gave up one of the most valuable trade chips in baseball at that point. Uh, but I think when you look at it and see what Rizzo is now and see what he's making and what Gonzalez is making, uh, there's no question you'd rather have Rizzo, maybe even without salary comparisons. Uh, and certainly once the salary factors in, it's not even close. Uh, and there were other pieces in that deal. Now those pieces haven't necessarily turned out as well as Rizzo has, but uh, to get Rizzo as kind of a centerpiece of that of that trade, uh, I think has has been a, a good move for San Diego. And then you know, Boyer was able to relocate Rizzo to Chicago for like four years. Then for Cashner, who I like, uh, Andrew Cashner, a good deal. But certainly, you'd rather have a young, power hitting first baseman uh, without injury concerns than a you know somewhat brittle starting pitcher who might end up at the bullpen. Right, and. Um... You mentioned defense with regard to Rizzo, and this is something about which I'm curious. I, you know, I know especially uh, with Bill Petty's excellent work at the site um, concerning age curves and uh, other research, I, I think we know uh, fairly well that uh, generically, in terms of generic age curve, defense is one of the things that peaks earliest. That's, this is correct? Yes, correct. Yeah, yeah. I think the, uh, the general assessment of the defense peaks around 21 or 22. Right, and I'm assuming, maybe I'm wrong, but I'm assuming that this would have partially to do with range, no? Yeah, I mean, I think it's just athleticism, and, you know, like, as you get older, you get slower, you get bigger. Uh, you know, in general, I think your physical skills start declining pretty early, uh, and physical skills have the most to do with defense versus, you know, hitting or pitching. Do you think, though, there's a possibility, you know, because first base, it seems like a lot of the value, uh, uh, you know, agility is part of it, range is part of it, but it seems like there's a lot more sort of hand-related work in playing a good first base. Uh, do you see a possibility, or do you already know of research, that that the age curve defensively at first base could be different from say like shortstop or center field. And so I don't think I've seen that study. It's kind of an interesting idea. I think 
that maybe the challenging part of that would be isolating players who only played first base early in their career versus, you know, if you see guys who moved to first base later in their career, they might appear to be better defenders at first base because they were athletic enough to play somewhere else early. So you might look at it and be like, oh, yeah, 30-year-old first baseman actually aren't any worse than 23-year-old first baseman, but it's a different population of players. So you need to look at guys who, you know, like a Prince Fielder who came up strictly as a first baseman who had no chance of playing in the other position and what he was like kind of later in his career. I haven't seen that study, but it's uh, worth doing. So listeners, go do that study for us. <laughs> well, for, I, I guess it, you mentioned uh, uh, Rizzo's young, power-hitting first baseman is a good prospect. But typically, and I think that we're sort of alluding to it here, you have to be you have to be something special to be a first base prospect, right? Because, I mean, there are guys who come up, you know, so many players come up as shortstops. Uh, of course, they're, you know, a lot of them don't stay at shortstop, but they at least had something there, something that uh, gave uh, talent evaluators the impression that they could be worth a damn defensively. If you're starting at first base, then you better be doing something special with the bat in order to really be considered a prospect. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a, certainly a case to be made that the, the um, hit tool is probably the hardest one to project, and maybe even the hitting for power. I mean, these two things are, are not easy to just go scout and be like, yeah, I mean, you can see that some guys are going to hit for power and other guys aren't, but knowing, like, the magnitude of whether a guy is going to slug 450 or 550 is not easy. I mean, you know, I think uh, you can look at a lot of guys who were projected to grow into their bodies and, and really add strength as they got older, and they never did, and they flopped out as prospects. And there's, you know, like the Matt Laportas of the world, he's going to bat only players who just never hit. Uh, you know, they end up out of baseball, because if you don't hit and that's all you do, uh, you're kind of useless. And so, you know, to, I think that's probably one of the reasons why Hoyer's been able to acquire Rizzo several times is the only thing he has going for him really is, is a plus bat. And I think there's, you know, maybe some scouting concerns about how often he struck out in the minors and certainly didn't have a great debut uh, with San Diego when they called him up for his first 150 at-bats. Uh, you know, struck out a lot, didn't hit for a lot of power. Um, you know, Baseball America has never ranked him all that highly as a prospect. He was on the top 100 list, but he wasn't a, you know, a top 10 prospect. I know he was generally in the 50 to 75 range. Um, so I think there are concerns with, or there were concerns with Rizzo that maybe the bat wouldn't play and make him a star given that, that, you know, he's a first baseman without any speed, uh, he really had to hit, and the bar was pretty high. But I think what we've seen from Rizzo in the last, you know, year or so is uh, he's going to hit, the bat is very good. Well, so, because uh, a lot has to come together to create a top offensive player, right? I mean, you could have great raw power, but if you're not making contact, right, or if you're not, and if you're not taking walks, and as you mentioned, Rizzo certainly has room to grow there, but if you're not demonstrating, if you're not really demonstrating a, a competence, in all of the major categories, and then excellence in a couple of them. You know, like we know, I mean, Rizzo hits the ball hard, and that's good in yeah. a couple different ways. You, you right. really need all that to come together. Yeah, I mean, I think there's no question that, um, you know, starting from a, a position where you ha- you have to be able to hit, you know, there's not really a room for a fatal flaw. And I think that that's one of the things that, um, you know, maybe there was some thought that Rizzo had, you know, too much of a contact problem. Uh, strikeout rates in the minors were pretty high, and, uh, you know, I think his first stint in San Diego, he took out 30% of the time. Where he, I think you could genuinely look at it and say, I'm not 100% sure that Rizzo's going to make enough contact to be a, uh elite offensive first baseman. I think, you know, what we generally see from these really great hitters is they hit for power and they don't strike out. I don't know, they'll strike out 100 times, but they're not strike out 200 times. Uh, you know, for Rizzo, I think his contact rate has been better in the majors than maybe we expected, and that's kind of the reason why he's developed 
uh, into a real quality first baseman faster than people expected. Let's talk about someone who's who somehow managed probably to develop faster than people expected, despite the fact that his expectations were crazy. Uh, this Bryce Harper. I, I know that you like talking about Bryce Harper. You uh, mentioned that today. You you linked to a piece that Adam Kilgore had done at the Washington Post, which um, I spent some time with as well. It's a it's a um, I, I guess actually to be interested to think about talk about it first in terms of what it is in terms of this uh, crossover between journalism and analysis. It's uh, I guess the video coordinator or hitting instructor for for the Nationals started to recognize similarities between Bryce Harper's stroke and and uh, Babe Ruth's, uh, but then also uh, and so there's sort of video analysis of Harper's swing from like a uh, you know like using basic concepts from physics, but but helpful ones, and uh, but then also having a sort of narrative tied to it. Yeah, I mean I, I think you know if you haven't seen the piece we're talking about, immediately go to, I mean, go to Fangraphs and then scroll down where it says Lake Bryce Harper Swing and then click on the link and see what we're talking about. Cause it's, I think it's tough to describe without actually having seen it, but it's kind of an integrated, I mean, you can't call it a column. It's a, it's words, video, uh, a couple of animated GIFs, uh, um, some scouting reports, some heat maps, uh, um, narrative from players, narrative from coaches. Um, it's kind of, what I would consider like the perfect modern baseball uh, journalism tool is it's everything that you could possibly say about Bryce Harper's swing rolled into one really awesome package. And I think that you know the Washington Post did a great job with this. This is you know kind of reminds me of that Mariano Rivera piece in the New York Times a couple of years ago where they uh, kind of demonstrated <laughs> where his pitches go and and the power of his cutter and kind of really showing like you know when a, a an entity with significant financial backing sends a talented journalist into the field um, and equips him with modern technology, we can produce some really great things. And, you know, baseball journalism can be a lot more than just game stories and notes. Right, yeah. And, and what I, I guess one of the things that's sort of revealed is that is is uh, um, the physics behind a Harper swing and the thing that might make it uh, particularly powerful. I, I mean, the things I took away from it, right, was that um, – he has a ton of load, meaning uh, he, he sort of coils his body backwards, uh, right? He coils it to sort of in a, in a leftward fashion, like a counterclockwise fashion. And then when he strides forward, he uh, he keeps his legs stiff and then uses that as a fulcrum around which to, to twist his body backwards clockwise, therefore creating the velocity. I mean – I guess that this is something that's not foreign necessarily to scouts, but it seems to be – it seems to use not necessarily the exact language of scouts. Right. I mean, I think there's certainly some scouting elements to it, but there's – like you said, there's some elements of physics to it. There's some science in there. Uh, there's some statistics to kind of back up what they're saying and some visuals. So I think uh, – right. I mean, I think this is a kind of a hybrid piece that shows that this is not – um, you know, scouting or statistics. This is both. And, you know, like, uh, Mac Lowe, an NBA writer for Grantland, uh, has a tweet this morning where said, you know, like, if you're reading someone who is still trying to paint a divide between statistical analysis and watching the game, you can ignore what they're going to say. Because really, statistical analysis, uh, and watching the game can really be combined into a, um, more powerful force than either one by themselves. And I think this Kilgore piece, uh, is a great example of how you can take bits and pieces from uh, multiple ways of seeing baseball and multiple pieces of information to really um, get at the truth of, of what's happening. 
One of the interesting things, I think, was that Harper, uh, and not that he needs to know, but Harper does not necessarily uh, understand or, or have an answer for how he learned and how he's continued to develop his the, the exact mechanics of his swing. It, certainly, he, he I think he emphasizes uh, the amount of hours he's spent playing, but he doesn't necessarily know exactly what's going on. And I guess what is revealed is that a player doesn't necessarily need to know if it's working. Right. I mean, I think from Harper's standpoint, all he needs to do is, you know, keep doing what he's doing. Uh, understanding it is probably not as important for a hitter as it is for a pitcher. I think, in general, you probably don't see that many pitchers except for a guy who throw like 101, you know, uh, go out there and just have no idea how to pitch. Uh, don't understand pitch sequencing. Don't understand, you know, hitting their spots. It, I think it's much more uh, possible for a hitter to just say, this is my natural reaction. I see a ball, I swing at the ball, and it goes really far. Um, you know, in Harper's case, the physical abilities can kind of carry him. Uh, where maybe in a pitcher's case, that wouldn't be that wouldn't be so true. So I think there are spots in baseball where you kind of need to understand what you're doing and why you're doing it. In Harper's case, he just needs to know, you know, I'm strong, I can hit that, I should swing at it. Uh, looking today in the notes at um, the five batters who've most improved uh, in terms of uh, their steamer projections, their woba steamer projections. Uh, probably not surprising to find uh, Harper third on that list, considering what he's done uh, uh, even since last year and um, what, he, what he's been able to do this year. Um, and also, I guess, the, you know, there's probably also an age curve applied to that, too. Um, it's not shocking, I guess, that uh, his projection would have increased the most. Yeah, I mean, I think what we've seen is, you know, coming into the season, we thought Bryce Harper was going to be good, but Bryce Harper is great. I mean, I think he's made that kind of leap that I put up a post, I don't know, a couple weeks ago that kind of showed uh, what guys who were good at age 20 or average at age 20 as it relates to Anthony Machado did uh, at age 19 did at age 20 or at age 20 did at age 21 and kind of showed, you know, if you can hold your own in the majors, a leap is is potentially coming. Not every player makes it, but there's a chance for you to take a huge step forward. Harper has taken that huge step forward. I think at this point, you know, the only comparisons that work are, you know, Kangaroo Jr. or these guys who were uh, absurdly great, you know, Alex Rodriguez, uh, kind of the inner circle Hall of Famers in their early 20s, because that's kind of the leap that Harper has already made. Yeah, and I guess it deserves to be mentioned that uh, Mike Trout – who was not uh, whose name was not near the top of the uh, war leaderboards you know at least to begin the season uh, he's back there i think already he's like within the top 15 already mike trout continues yeah, to I think be he, good yeah i mean there's nothing wrong with mike trout <laughs> like, i think when, when people look at the angels what's wrong with them it's not mike trout <laughs> all right yeah uh, you have fulfilled your uh, obligations to fangrass audio unless i'm unless i'm forgetting anything uh, i believe you have not forgotten anything Corbin Joseph made his Major League debut today, is what did happen. That's and, exciting. And in his first uh, first plate appearance, Dave Cameron? Walked. Yeah. Walked. Of course he did. Yeah. Yeah. He's going to he's gonna do that a bunch, probably. It looks like well, Cleveland... Well, probably not. Because he's probably not going to play that much. <laughs> it's hard right. to walk from the bench. Uh, yeah. Well, he, wherever he is, he's going to walk. Um, right. In the minors, he will walk at each one. He'll continue to walk, yeah. Yeah, I guess he played first base today. Who's played? Who plays first base for that team now? Lionel Overbay. Oh, wow. he's actually doing okay. Uh, yeah, the, I, the, I, we should note, like it's a little sad that we went through an entire podcast and not know the Yankees. I think currently have the second best record in baseball, and they're doing it being led by Vernon Wells. 
like the team that everyone was destroying in spring training, like the narrative of, of March was the Yankees are dying. Uh, woe is the Yankees. They, they were the, the first place in the AL East, second best record in baseball. Vernon Wells, while over Bay, carrying the day. Uh, Travis Hafner not doing poorly either, I believe. Yes, right. Well, Travis Hafner, I think you can see this coming. I, he was one of my favorite value free agent signings. So whenever Travis Hafner has always been able to hit when he's been healthy. Vernon Wells and while over Bay, not so much. Not so much. Now, uh, you will notice, though, if you go back to um, to the post we did, I think right, right at the end of March or beginning of April, uh, the Fangraph staff predictions. Uh, yeah, was, we were the only one who predicted the Yankees to win the division. Yeah, that's just uh, yeah. I mean, that's the sort of quality analysis you're going to get out of Carson Sestouli. Right, that and Corbin Joseph's love. No, well, and also Connor Gillespie for Rookie of the Year in the American League. Not in, not impossible at this point. Right, because there are no good rookies in the American <laughs> well, that's, League. Yeah, right. Well, but that's actually a thing, right, is that uh, Rookies of the Year, like, I mean, part of it's talent, obviously, but part, like, huge part of it's opportunity, and not just opportunity, but opportunity you know, with enough plate appearances. Like, you need to start right. getting plate appearances pretty early because writers are going to look, and probably rightly so, they're going to look at totals. Yeah, I think, like, maybe we should consider, like, renaming the Rookie of the Year award after, like, the overall talent pool. So maybe have, like, tiers. So Connor Glaspie would maybe be eligible for, like, the Bob Hamlin Rookie of the Year Award. Yeah. And then, like, Mike Trout could have won, like, the Jackie Robinson Rookie of the Year Award or something. So, like, based on the quality of the players, uh, this is the the kind of Rookie of the Year Award you win. I don't know if there's been a worse Rookie of the Year than Bob Hamlin. Maybe Pat Lestash. I don't know. It's someone from that, like, kind of range. Uh, that's the kind of Rookie of the Year Award Connor Gillespie might win. Didn't, uh, wasn't there a, uh, wasn't there a Kansas City Royal shortstop that won one year? Um... um Oh, are, are you thinking about that free-swinging hack and made a lot of errors? Yeah. Well, yeah they've right. had a lot of those. <laughs> yeah, that's right. They've had a lot. Well, it wasn't Tony Pena, right? No, it was uh, the one who got a lot of hype. Uh, we're we're going to th- – well, how about this? You you keep thinking of it. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to be looking it up me. on the internet, and uh, we'll, see, we'll see who gets there first. Right. Um, it well, wasn't – I am not looking this up. I'm sure you're going to get this. Was it Andre, Andre something? Maybe it was Andre? Andre Blanco? No. no. He was, Angel Barroa. Angel Barroa, that's who we're thinking of. Yes. He was terrible. Kind of a tough stretch uh, in the early aughts. We had Eric Kinski to Angel Barroa to Bobby Crosby. Yeah, it's not good. Yeah, yeah. All right. I think the thing that Bobby Crosby will always be remembered for is Peter Gaiman saying he will win multiple MVP awards. Huh. What happened to Bobby Crosby? He got hurt, okay. and he was overrated to begin with. But right. yeah, he peaked early. There's, you know, potentially some thoughts that he was probably uh, proud that it was a chemical enhancement. Right. Well, yeah. But then again, uh, he was what? He was not like a. He was a, a rather talented, uh, like offensively minded shortstop who. Right. I mean, he had, he had 22 home runs his first. His what? His age 24 season. That's not bad. Yeah, no, he started off strong. He was the kind of the Ben Greve of shortstops. Yeah, but they they were might have been teammates at one point even. Uh, maybe Greve might have moved on to disappoint other fans by the time Crosby. By the time that happened, yeah. All right, all right. Now you've really uh, fulfilled your obligations. Let's get you, let's get you off this uh, program. Thank you for joining us, uh, Fangraphs Managing Editor Dave Cameron. All right, thanks for having me. All right, that is Dave Cameron. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio.